So hello and welcome everyone to the Pacific Center podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Lane and I will be your host as we explore many interesting topics with many amazing people from a variety of professional backgrounds over the months and years ahead. The focus of this podcast will be the intersection of the traditional healthcare practices of various cultures and the modern scientific research on peak physical and cognitive performance. This show will be delivered in an interview format. And our guest today is Roger Yanka. Dr. Roger Yanka, OMD, is a doctor of Chinese medicine with 30 years of clinical practice and nine research tours to China to study its ancient healing traditions. He's the founder, director, and lead trainer of the Institute of Integral Qigong and Tai Chi, and serves as a consultant to hospitals, social service agencies, and corporations in complementary and integrative medicine, wellness, and medical cost reduction. Dr. Yonka is author of The Healer Within, uh, which was published in 1999. I actually have a copy myself, which is a wonderful book. And it's used in body-mind programs worldwide. His most recent book is The Healing Promise of Qi. And that's become an instant classic in the Western literature on Qigong and Tai Chi. In 2005, Dr. Yanka was appointed to co-convene a national expert meeting on Qigong and Tai Chi in collaboration with the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the National Blueprint for Active Aging. For more information, please do visit www dot feel the chi dot com that's f-e-e-l-t-h-e-q-i dot com feel the chi dot com brief disclaimer while we may be discussing some medical issues and treatments today we will in no way be providing medical advice and as always for any health related issues and conditions you should seek appropriate medical care and advice from a health care professional Roger, it's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here with us. Indeed. Thank you, Greg. So before we dive into uh, our specific topic today, which is Qigong, I, I think uh, for some of our members of our audience, we may, we may need a little bit of primer on the subject. So um, can you give us a bit of the historical context of Qigong? How, what is it? How did it start? Where did it sure. come from? So every indigenous culture who invented medicine in their own way, that would be Native Americans and South Americans and Siberians and Mongolians and Africans and the people in India, <clears throat> the people in China and more, uh, came up with a whole array of strategies for how to um, maximize well-being as well as heal diseases. And the uh, Qigong becomes a part of the uh, Chinese tradition, just like yoga becomes a part of the uh, Ayurvedic tradition. And just like uh, African dancing becomes a part of the African traditions and the Druids and the Native Americans and so on. So with that idea, we could say, well, then... In, in the Western world, we say nutrition, exercise, and stress management uh, is the wellness program. In Chinese medicine, 
all of that is called yang sheng. Yang sheng means nourishing life. So when you nourish the capacity of the human system at the level of the body and the mind and emotions, which we call the heart mind, um, that maximizes function. Maximized function then decreases the risk for disease and decreases symptomology. So all these medical systems from all of these ancient cultures came up with these, uh, shall we say, wellness type programs. In the Chinese view, there are three levels of uh, engaging the body, mind, and spirit, if you will, um, at different, at different uh, uh, what would you call it, levels of capacity. Mm. Everybody's familiar with Kung Fu. So that's the go, go hard, go fast, be strong, be enduring. Um, tai Chi is a step down from that. It's got a lot of complexity for the brain and for the body, um, but it's slower and easier. And then most of the kinds of Qigong are meditations in motion, not always, because they can be sitting meditations as well, where the level of um, uh, exertion, shall we say, is very low, while at the same time having the capacity to accelerate and maximize functionality, metabolism, qi, qi circulation, uh, neurological impulse distribution, and, and, and so forth. So it's the, I'll go a little further and say that Qigong is typically made up of uh, body practice, adjusting the posture, as well as um, uh, moving the body around in thousands of different ways, and then breath practice, uh, noticing the breath and then modifying the breath. And then the third part is mind focus practice, which is kind of like we could say meditation is, is the same thing. So these three components, the body practice, the breath practice, and the mind practice are what we call the operational definition or what it is that's actually happening when you do Qigong. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with that, how did you become interested in, in Qigong practices? I know you're, you've studied Chinese medicine in depth. You're, you're an acupuncturist and herbalist. And um, what, what led you down that path? Well, you know, these things happen uh, sort of in contrary to your plans, right? So my original plan was to be a uh, medical doctor. And uh, when I went to medical school, I was um, shocked to find that nobody really talked about how to prevent disease. They were only very, very busy uh, in the in the process of uh, diagnosing and treating disease so that when I asked for guidance about how to help people to sustain their well-being um, People would say well, you know, we're doctors. We don't do that Yeah uh, In fact one person actually said to me if you want to study how to keep people healthy You have to you have to go to the home economics department <laughs> <laughs> Where they'll teach you to cook. Yeah, and you know, fix cuts on fingers and, you know, uh, all that. So uh, that 
uh, it was the 1960s and a lot was going on then. And I was already anxious and depressed about the uh, war effort uh, mm. of our nation, which didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And so I dropped out of medical school and um, eventually I found my way into literature. And the first book that we read in the world literature course was the Tao Te Ching, uh, composed in around 500 uh, before the common calendar. So now 2,500 years ago, a book full of incredible wisdom. And one of the things that, it, I'll just say number 10 of the Tao Te Ching, it asks the question, can you calm down? Yeah. And, it, it, and then it asks the question, can you use your breath and your body to sustain the suppleness of a newborn mm. with no cares? And I thought, oh, this is it. This is the medicine. Yeah. So after that, I thought, well, you know, Chinese medicine has got to be where that happens. And of course, a lot of that is woven into Chinese medicine. But the, the essence of how those ideas are, um, shall we say, woven into the Chinese medical paradigm isn't necessarily clinical. Mm -hmm. It's more behavioral. And I just have a personal bias to that, even though I had 30 years in clinical practice and loved it. Um, I'll, I'll say one more thing about that. I, f I, I found myself distressed at one point, realizing that most of my patients didn't care about learning how to take care of themselves. Yeah. What they cared about was seeing a doctor who would fix them. Mm -hmm. And that bothered me a little bit for a while, and then it bothered me a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then it basically actually really bothered me, at which point I shifted into uh, my focus on Qigong and Tai Chi, and I'm now the director of a training institute for Qigong and Tai Chi uh, teachers, and it's very rewarding. I used to have maybe 10 or 20% of the people that I would meet with who were interested in learning how to take care of themselves. Mm. I now meet 100% people who are interested in taking care of themselves. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's quite a shift. Very rewarding. That's quite a shift, and, and um, we'll get into it. We'll get into some of the modern research here in a little bit because I know you've done su such an expansive um, uh, search on the on what's out there in, in the literature. But isn't it isn't it so that you know walking around with qigong practice is the elixir to life in in some in some circumstances and maybe most circumstances? Yes, in 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 all circumstances. Here's here's. Here's how it's declared by the wizards and shamans who came up with this stuff, is that the golden elixir of longevity, which means healthy longevity mm -hmm. and immortality, whatever the heck that is, and I, I hope maybe we'll talk a little bit about it, yeah. um, is produced within your own being. And then in fact, instead of being produced, it is resident within your own being. And therefore, instead of having to go somewhere to get the elixir, mm -hmm. what, we, what we learn to do and what we cultivate, that's a big, big Qigong word, cultivate is, is the capacity to not restrict the natural presence of healing uh, capacities and resources within the body. And when we do not 
restrict or encumber the natural healing capacities through our behaviors and our lifestyle, we are naturally producing the golden elixir. Mm. And I guess the golden elixir would be a, a conglomeration of the balance of our hormones, our enzymes, our antibodies, et cetera, that we would talk about in biomedicine in the proper yes, function. Exactly. And, and in addition, all the way over to spilling into the um, sustainability of the um, DNA's capacity to replicate, because after all, when cells uh, reach the point where they no longer have the necessary resources to replicate, then those cells die. Mm -hmm. And eventually over time, if enough of the cells in our brain, liver, heart, kidneys, etc., have uh, have have uh, lost their capacity to replicate, we lack we we lack a capacity to sustain, mm -hmm. and and so it goes off into the DNA, uh, and one of the first one of the first most interesting questions that I asked my first teacher of Chinese medicine in Hawaii was does does Chinese medicine have an influence on the on the DNA. Mm. And I was expecting the person to say, well, you know, I'm not sure, but uh, I think so. Um, but the, it, was a, it was a direct and immediate yes, and um, very quickly went off into the story about the Jing and so forth, because that's the traditional idea about the DNA. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other part of the elixir is the neurohormones, the neurotransmitters, the choline-based neurotransmitters, which are a part of the rest and restore aspect of the autonomic nervous system. Mm. And as you said, all of this is an amalgam of um, many, a multiplicity of many features, M-I-N-I features, that then come together to create what the Chinese call the golden elixir. Mm. Mm -hmm. So while you're talking about this, I'm thinking about um, practicing, because I've been practicing for many years. In fact, I wanted to mention to you that, and you didn't know this before just now, I um, I had the chance to uh, be in one of your symposium classes at the Pacific Symposium years ago. I don't even hmm. remember when. Nice. It was awesome. And, um, Thank you. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you said that stuck with me all these many years was that uh, while practicing, it's very important to practice with cheerful indifference. <laughs> Don't and you love that phrase? I love that phrase, and it really resonates with me because it's such a it's your, doing doing anything with cheerful indifference in this society is really almost contrary to most everything else we do. Even if you yep. look at you know, these, these high level athletes, they're not practicing with cheerful indif indifference. They're, they're, you know, they're getting up and, you know, quote unquote, embracing the suck of their workout. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's just penetrate this for a moment because I think it's a really interesting phrase. And um, so we know what cheerful means and we know what indifference means. And when we think about yin and yang, uh, they are typically a in, in, in a, um, a mutuality of the um, separate parts of a whole. And so cheerful indifference really captures the idea 
of, of the, the yang part, which is the effervescence that can be experienced as we uh, navigate through the things that we prefer and love. Uh, and then indifference is this sort of laid back, uh, you know, whatever sort of approach to things, which is really in contrast. So right, at, right there in that, in that little phrase, we have what I would call it Tai Chi, Tai Chi being that picture that we see uh, of the yin and the yang together in about the same, the white side and the black side being about the same size on both sides. We call that harmony and balance. Cheerful indifference is kind of a way to sustain harmony and balance moment to moment. If you put that together with breath practice, you've got some real power there, if you can remember to apply it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I often think about that while I'm practicing. You know, am I, how am I practicing? I think that's part of the, part of the work is the introspection and allowing, allowing what, what comes to come and observe, right? Yep. Practicing. Yep. Yep. There's another thing about the, the Tai Chi of our practice, which is the yin side and the yang side. I'll just mention it here for a moment. And that is the past and the future. Mm. Whether we decide whether the past is yin or the past is yang doesn't really matter. What it, what it, what it means is that we in any one moment are on the line between the yin and the yang in the Tai Chi symbol if we can disassociate from the regrets of the past and the anxieties of the future. Mm. And that is one of the most powerful components to a Qigong or Tai Chi or yoga or mindfulness practice. And that is to cultivate the capacity to disassociate from the complexities that we are, um, you know, we're just under the influence of when we're um, planning yeah. Uh, imagining at the same time as the other kind of negative is the regrets yeah. and, and the, you know, even the celebrations of the past that we've become addicted to mm -hmm. the feeling of being a winner. Yeah. All of those take us out of <laughs> cheerful indifference yeah. or equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in uh, the research with respect to to qigong. First of all, when when did when did you start becoming aware of research? I mean, you kind of you came upon this in the '60s as sort of a you know, if I might be so bold, a bit of a counterculture search. I mean, certainly yep. that was a time where you know a lot of people were you know they're taking acid they were doing mushrooms they were smoking weed so it wasn't legal you know they were doing yoga they were you know maybe doing some tai chi you know really pull dropping out right dropping out mm -hmm. dropping, yeah dropping out and dropping in so where did the where did research start to start happening with this with Qi? well that's interesting um, you know those of us who are interested in Chinese medicine and have put our careers into that direction and even people who are our clients um, have a, a place in themselves for the idea that if something has sustained within a culture for a really long time. Mm -hmm. That it must have some relevance. Yeah. Uh, here in the Western world, uh, we, you know, uh, I'll say we, um, you know, I'm not really a big fan of this idea, but as a, as a culture, 
we don't think like if something lasted for a long time, it has value. In fact, we think that if something wasn't invented yesterday, it has no value. <laughs> and so <clears throat> to be able to carry on a conversation in, in, and I'm very interested in policy mm. and programs that have an influence on large populations like the veterans administration and uh, older people and so forth. And I've worked a lot in, in conferences and as a consultant and as a researcher. And um, at one point I felt like, and, and I'm the director of the Institute of Integral Qigong and Tai Chi, and my job is to watch the horizon and uh, make, help to make decisions that direct the Institute uh, towards a sustainable future. Mm -hmm. And there was a point when uh, I felt like we had kind of done a good job of the part of saying, if it's been around for this long, it must be fine. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question in my own mind, you know, what should I do? Should I network with people who have power, uh, you know, any number of other kinds of things, or should I maybe this or that? And so I asked the question, kind of like you would ask the I Ching, you know, like, what, what's the future? Like, what would be the thing to do now that would be the getting the right choosing the right point, yeah. uh, using the right point or the right herbal formula. And with no hesitation whatsoever, a voice in my head that was nearly audible said one word, research. Mm. And so I reached out to people that I have trained as teachers, and some of them were uh, scientists, mm -hmm. and some of them were policy people who were uh, sort of fulfilling on this whole idea that if you can't prove it, mm -hmm. then we can't make it into a program. So the two people that I'll mention, one a researcher at the University of Arizona and the other the president of the National Council on Aging, mm -hmm. I personally don't think that Qigong and Tai Chi are just for old people. Right. I've been doing it since I was in my 20s, yeah. and a lot of millennials are getting pretty high on chi yeah so you know just because we worked with the national uh council on aging doesn't mean anything except that they were interested right and so these uh in collaboration with these two characters and then moving further in um what happened is that we started to look uh, on one hand we did research where we basically just asked questions of people who have never practiced before mm -hmm. and then supported them in practicing and then asked them again the, some of the same questions. And what we got was significance in terms of the difference between how people were feeling before they had ever done this kind of practice mm -hmm. and after they had done this kind of practice, which is beautiful research, although we did not use a uh, uh, there was not a, a control group uh -huh. in that earliest research. Uh, since then, we've done much more sophisticated research, uh, which includes um, uh, control groups. Right, right. Uh, and one of the things that we did kind of in the middle of all of this, which was to, to develop the rationale that it was worth doing more mm 
mm-hmm. was we did a re- we did a review of all the research that's ever been done on qigong and tai chi mm-hmm. and uh through a- around 2010 2012 something like that and the number of studies that had been done at that point that fit the criteria of having a control group mm-hmm. and not leaving in big important pieces out that that was 77 studies 77 yeah and at that point you could say because that was in fact that was more than yoga at the time which is another topic that we can talk about mm-hmm. you know how these things come into our society right um but the most notable thing about that research was that it becomes the evidence base. That's big language because for policy and program development, people who don't know about these things, they can only depend on, is it evidence-based? Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to prove that Qigong and Tai Chi were evidence-based. And, 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 and that particular review, which was um, published in the uh, American Journal of Health Promotion, which is a very credible uh, journal, uh, really made its way directly into the policy stream, and uh, for which I'm super gratified. Yeah. A, a little thing to add to that is that since then, so 2010, we're not even to 2020 yet. Mm-hmm. So from 1990 to 2010, the amount of studies that fit the criteria was 77. Yeah. In the 10 years. Uh, less than 10 years since then, mm-hmm. the number is uh, over 150, which means that in half the time or less than half the time, twice as much research is happening, which also means that the magnitude of credibility and respect for Qigong and Tai Chi as a part of the big picture mm-hmm. is rising and that the money that's being poured into it is also rising. Mm-hmm. And recently, uh, Harvard declared that uh, Tai Chi, and I think when they say Tai Chi, they really mean easy, accessible forms of Tai Chi, which you and I would probably call Qigong. Mm-hmm. It is the number two exercise uh, for impacting on large populations to heal and prevent disease. Yeah. Number two. That's fantastic. That's that is amazing. Yeah. What was number one? Swimming. Swimming. Interesting. <laughs> I loved it because yeah. I was sure that it was going to either be mindfulness, yeah. which I, you know, I mean, Tai Chi and Qigong are mindfulness, right, right. or yoga, yeah. which are also mindfulness. Um, so it was, it, was, uh, it was a really, really special moment for myself and people like myself who have really been wanting to support Qigong and Tai Chi in, in having a kind of uh, platform to, you know, a credible platform for proliferation into our society. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, if you think about swimming, it's just Qigong in water. <laughs> it's just Qigong in water. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So we, um, <laughs> I want to go back to actually some of the nuts and bolts and then kind of come back to some of the research. Sure. So when we're practicing Qigong, you talked about breathing, you talked about movement, you talked about mental, emotional state. How, how important is it 
to you. I guess my question is, how would you frame the practice in its in its highest potential? Is it just moving? Is it moving with you know, watching? You know, with your with your eyes watching your movement. Is it breathing? Is it being conscious of your breath? Where what is the 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 zeitgeist of the process that really contributes to the best outcomes? Yeah, good. So I like your zeitgeist word because what it does is that it doesn't say, which is often the question, what is the most important part of qigong? Uh, when you say zeitgeist, what you're saying is how do the most important parts weave? Yeah. And that's, that's huge. So even how you ask the question is a, is a beautiful invitation to not have a long discussion in which we have to say it's not about one part, it's about all the parts. Yeah. So we can just go to how all the parts operate. Mm -hmm. um, just, uh, you know, for those of us who are participating here, listening in, think to yourself, if you adjust your posture, what is required? The answer, I have to first decide to. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the deciding to factor, which has to do with the mental emotional part, uh, is kind of like a leader. But if I decide to do something and then quickly decide to do something else, like get angry at somebody or go shopping, then that isn't a practice. That's just a momentary, uh, temporary decision, uh, which I have now moved on from and is not a practice. It's just a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. When you, when you adjust your posture, notice the difference between the breath you could have taken beforehand and the breath that you can take now. So let's all slump down, try to take a deep breath, and then let's rise up and try to take a deep breath. And immediately you can feel the difference between the volume that the lungs can uh, take on if you've shifted to the point where your head is lifting and your shoulders are dropped and so forth. So already now we've got a relationship between the decision to start the practice and what could happen next. Well, what is always happening next is we're breathing. Mm -hmm. So then the question isn't, am I breathing? The question is, am I breathing at, at a level that is maximum? And of course, that requires another decision. So now the mind helped us to decide to do the practice. Mm -hmm. Then the mind noticed that when we got going by lengthening our posture, we could also deepen our breath. So you can see the mind is woven through everything in, in, a, in, a, in a way. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, if we can engage the zeitgeist, if we can engage the three treasures, the body portion, the breath portion, and the mind portion, how do we do that? What are we going to do? Like, how are we filling time? And we're filling time by either being still and scanning the um, internal environment or the external environment, mm -hmm. uh, or we can be in movement, scanning the external and the internal environment. And the focus of our, people say, this is a very, very common, well, I do Qigong, but I get bored. Yeah. 
And the answer to the, the issue there is that you haven't discovered that being in the moment, paying attention to what the practice is as you're doing it, mm-hmm. extracts you from any kind of past or present moment focus. Yeah. Brings you into the present. And when we're in the present, there, and, and it's safe, right? Because if it was the present and it wasn't safe, then we wouldn't be doing Qigong. We would be running or defending or something like that. So we know that we're, we're probably safe, um, even though we may not feel safe in our life because we've been traumatized and all that stuff. Which might um, come so, up when you're practicing, right? Which may come up with your, when, when you're practicing. That's what we call cultivation. So we get these three treasures going. The posture, either the, the body either still or moving. The breath, um, doing everything that the breath does. And we can talk about the physiology of the breath if you want to. Mm-hmm. And the mind uh, uh, adhering to a present moment focus. Then we can then be aware of what's trying to come in and where is it coming in from Mm. and do we believe it and and that's huge yeah because if i'm if i'm a person who's distracted in my practice and i believe that i have to to make a phone call Mm -hmm. or i believe i have to protect myself uh, or i believe that i need to think about this person who's been uh, who, who owes me an apology but never apologizes, if I believe that that's more valuable than paying attention to the present, then my level of functional capacity is going to be distressed and, and distracted, mm-hmm. restricted and encumbered. Mm-hmm. And as the mind is encumbered, the body is encumbered. Where the, where the, where the mind goes the functionality follows. And so if I allow myself to be waving my hands as if I'm doing a practice, but I'm actually hysterical because I think I should be selling gold, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm not there. Or, or if I'm, you know, whatever it is that's being distra- distracting me. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the great powers of the Chinese medical visit, by the way, because when I was in uh, college learning about Chinese medicine in Hawaii, we would we would stand in the hall and have little confabs with the other uh, uh, students, and one of the things that kept coming up is is the acupuncture really doing anything? Yeah. Or is it the fact that we've nailed this person to the table <laughs> and they can't they just can't do anything else? <laughs> and of course, there's a lot of research, and our good friend uh, Fr- uh, uh, Ted Kapchuk has begun to investigate using the placebo as the handle. Um, what is it that happens in, in, a, in a medical visit that allures a human being into the belief that they can be more well? And you know, some of the research is showing very clearly that the reason why people have uh, different um, responses to uh, Chinese medicine than to regular medicine is that Chinese medical people are trained to be really interested mm. in a person and go into the detail of their lives. Yeah. Whereas a doctor, for better or worse, is looking at a report and telling people what's wrong with them and giving them a prescription, and that's about all of it. So 
that that whole interaction that has to do with um, putting the person at ease and having them tell you a little bit deeper story about their life and kind of like almost being a friend to them, but in a context where you're clearly not. Yeah. That is very, very, very powerful and very healing. And then to transport that feeling of safety into a dialogue that's not happening with someone else. It's a dialogue I'm having with myself Mm -hmm. about whether I believe that the boogie band that keeps chasing me is real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we talked a bit, or you mentioned a bit of uh, physiological changes that happen with, you know, the deepening of the breath. And by the way, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of our society, I believe, are chest breathers from about here up. If you can, you know, imagine mm-hmm. that touching up yep. around the level of my sternum, you know, which is a, a flight or fight, right, type of a, a presentation. Yep. So, so what are some of the, what are some of the known physiological changes that happen just aside from, uh, you know, mind and the present moment? What are some of the some of the um, physiological changes that you've seen in the research or that um, for our listeners uh, come yeah. out through that. So it's, it's just all the cool stuff. So when we think about what is being, what is happening in neuroscience now about brain plasticity, brain plasticity is increased by doing something novel. What's novel? Well, things that you've never done. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning Qigong is very novel. Um, but because Qigong is typically fairly easy, um, th- though there are complex forms of Qigong, it becomes less novel sooner. At that point, then, then it becomes really a good idea to learn new Qigong forms or to go on to Tai Chi. Yeah. Because Tai Chi requires not only to move the upper body in with a present moment focus, but to actually engage in stepping mm-hmm. And the capacity to move your arms and be stepping at the same time requires a level of um, brain function that is totally novel Mm -hmm. and has a huge influence on producing uh, new neural pathways and so forth. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, uh, when we do these practices, we either do relax because we're practicing or we have to relax to do the practice right and so it comes from both sides I, I i want to do the practice so i have to relax and i have to relax so that i can do the practice so it comes in from every side mm-hmm. and when we relax there's what we call the relaxation response which is contrary to what is called the stress response mm-hmm. and interestingly the stress response was discovered in the early 1900s and became the foundation for uh, the revolution in pharmaceuticals, Mm. whereas we didn't really know, um, we were were not able to articulate the relaxation response until 40 years later through Herbert Benson and the relaxation response and his work with the Maharishi and the meditation and the, you know, all that's the Beatles and, you know, all that stuff. (laughs) Relax your mind and drift downstream, whether you're high on something or just taking deep breaths. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the effect of these practices on the autonomic nervous system is a very quick shift uh, from the uh, adrenaline-based neurotransmitters 
to choline-based neurotransmitters. And choline-based neurotransmitters are all the ones, like the, um, the, the pain-relieving endorphins like are, are based on choline, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of these what we now know are healing neurotransmitters mm-hmm. uh, have choline at their bases and choline cannot proliferate uh, into the body chemistry effectively when the person is in, um, you know, not only in stress, but just in normal daily driving and uh, typing and selling and buying mm-hmm. consciousness. Yeah. And so triggering the, uh, relaxation response and the neurotransmitters that are associated with the relaxation response are huge. Mm. Then, because of that, there's the uh, activity of the uh, nervous, the uh, immune system. The immune system, it, uh, research that goes back into the 50s will tell you that the immune system is suppressed under stress mm. and the immune system is activated under the relaxation response or even some of the early research before the studies of the relaxation response. So we've got an immune enhancement is naturally occurring. Uh, part of the, the, um, part of the uh, relaxation response is an effect on the musculature of the blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Blood vessels are actually muscles. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in stress, the, blood vessels get smaller and when we relax the blood vessels get larger so that immediately reduces blood pressure right uh if you have the same amount of blood in a small system the pressure is higher than the same amount of blood in a large system right and then just let's keep going um the lymphatic system which is the opposite of the uh nourishment system so we have two sides of uh, metabolism, it's, it's another Tai Chi, mm-hmm. getting the nourishment and the oxygen in is the delivery system. Mm-hmm. And then the other half of metabolism is to remove and discharge the metabolic byproducts and any other kind of pollution, pollution that's been, uh, uh, you know, either produced by metabolism mm-hmm. or has gotten in through drink and food and smoke and and even, you know, mental, emotional. Yeah, uh, life. Right, exactly. So, so that lymphatic system is being increased by, there's uh, the, the delivery heart is a, unif- a single heart. Mm-hmm. Lymphatic has, has a five-part multi-portion heart, which includes the breath function, the contraction and release function, the, you know, if you turn yourself upside down, uh, or even if you raise your hands into the air, mm-hmm. you are uh, shifting the gravitational uh, effect on the lymphatic system. And there are a bunch more that are much more, uh, you know, subtle that we don't need to describe right now. Mm-hmm. And then finally, to, to go to your, so that, that's a lot. That yeah. is a whole lot. Yeah. And um, to go to your inquiry about the breath and the thing that you said about the, um, about the chest breathing and so forth, mm-hmm. this is really fascinating. And we, we can talk about it pretty briefly. So when we learn yoga, 
or when we hear that we haven't been breathing right, mm-hmm. the first thing that we hear is that we should be breathing with the belly. Right. And of course, that's a really good idea because when you don't use your diaphragm to breathe, number one, the diaphragm, the diaphragm becomes almost like paralyzed. Mm-hmm. But all of the mechanisms that are triggered by the diaphragm doing what the diaphragm does are untriggered until we use the diaphragm. And so we can say, well, what happens with the diaphragm? When you use the diaphragm to breathe, the diaphragm drops down. Mm -hmm. When you drop the diaphragm, it presses on the organs and it pumps the lymphatic system. So this is a huge deal because abdominal breathing then basically complements the the lub-dub harp, which is driving nutrition and oxygen uh, to the organs by removing the waste products through the lymphatic system, which is the bottom line of the, uh, of the, of the elimination system. Mm-hmm. So that's good. That's all good. But the thing that gets left out and that I am just all hopped up on is the fact that the chest breath actually does have a value mm-hmm. if you make the breath deeper. Yeah. And how that goes is that there's a structure in the lungs called stretch receptor, and there's a stretch, there's a structure in the uh, big veins and uh, arteries that go in and out of the heart called baroceptors. Baroceptors, like in barometer, being under the influence of pressure. Sure. Yeah. When you take a small breath, there's no change in the pressure in your thoracic. Uh, cage and the rib cage. Mm-hmm. But when you take a big breath, it changes the pressure dynamic in the rib cage. So you've got the pressure. When you take a deep breath, a big breath, it stretches the, y- the lung tissue mm-hmm. more than usual. Mm-hmm. These two, the stretch receptors activated and the um, baroreceptors activated, uh, release a, a powerful form of acetylcholine. Remember, choline is the rest and restore, the healing part of the internal pharmacy. Right. And so belly breath accelerates discharge of waste products. Chest breath dumps pharmaceuticals, drugs, into the system uh, that are um, rehabilitation-oriented drugs. So when when people wow. when that's a lot, and that thanks for that that deep dive into the the uh, the uh, the breath work. So and, and before you go on, let's yeah. just let's just take one deep breath here and yeah. let let this sink in, mm-hmm. because we think well that qigong tai chi, you know, that we're not like lifting anything, we're not speeding up, we're not going anywhere, we're not. We're not doing all these things that we think are so important, which, by the way, are important. Sure. But the thing that we're doing instead of all of that assumption that we have about what we should be doing, there's a whole world of things that we've never thought about that we're now thinking about. And that's how Tai Chi could get to be number two on Harvard's list of best exercises for uh, reducing risk for chronic disease and accelerating healing. Yeah. That's amazing. So when, when 
when we're practicing, we're, we're originating the breath in the Dantian, down behind the navel. I always view this, and correct me if I'm wrong, as if that's the starting point. And then a lot of times you'll see practitioners, and I believe it's incorrect, they get this turtle posture because they're focusing so much on just the lower abdomen and that they're, they're, they're mistaken the, the concept of sinking the chest and raising the back with actually compressing the chest and elevating the back so that the, the posture of the neck gets craned forward. But what, yep. you're describe, what you just described fits beautifully with what I think is accurate is that you begin your breath in the, in the Dantian and the, the, um, uh, the rib cage actually has an opportunity to expand and contract along with the, with the lower abdomen so that it's a, a billows type of effect that engages the entire thoracic region. Am I on, am I with you there? Yeah. You know, the, the thing that I would add besides agreeing with you, uh, and before I do my addition, I'll just say this, this posture that you're talking about, um, it, it comes from two things. Uh, number one, is that in the martial arts, the, that particular posture is basically expressive of the fact that when somebody punches you, if you can create a cavity or a receptiveness yeah. to receive that punch, it very, it's a very, very powerful martial technique, but, in, but, but it's, it's basically mostly just a martial technique. Gotcha. And what we're talking about here is health and function maxim, uh, maximization. Right. Rarely requires that we're going to defend ourselves against a kick or a punch. Mm -hmm. The second place that that weird posture comes from, if, if you watch the movie, um, the uh, the Last Emperor, it's, a, it's an amazing movie about the end of the imperial era and the last emperor and so forth yeah. and the, the rise of the uh of uh, the um you know the people's movement and so forth and and there's a scene in there where they're doing tai chi uh -huh. and the people who are doing tai chi are the depressed former elite yeah. and so they have this you know this just i'm so sad sort of look about them uh-huh uh-huh and so I think that this, this thing that you're talking about is that yeah. many of the sad elite actually escaped from China and became our Tai Chi teachers. Interesting. And many of them were martial teachers as well. So they had that caved in thing. Yeah. I think if you go on the internet to look at more contemporary competitions yeah. uh, for Tai Chi, the, the people who are winning the gold medals very, are all like very, very lengthy. Yeah. And their head is riding up into the clouds. Right. Okay. So then to confirm what you said about commencing the breath at the Dantian, mm -hmm. I would only correct it very mildly by saying to, to visualize that the breath is starting at the Dantian. Because in the final analysis, the breath itself is only in the lungs. Right. And the lungs just don't get down there. Yeah. But one of the things that we, we, we get to say here, and this is a very powerful little wrinkle in the, uh, the whole realm of Chinese medicine, is that if you look at the English translation for the word qi, yeah. 
in Chinese culture, there was an era uh, right around the time that we all started studying Chinese medicine. And lately, uh, the Chinese are beginning to use a larger definition for qi. And remember, the word qi has been in the language for longer than the language has been written. So that's probably going to be like five to 10,000 years. Yeah. So definition goes through phases. And the post-Maoist definition of qi was not the energy of the universe. It yeah. was just your energy. Right. And you know, so there were reasons for that. And some of us understand, you know, a little bit about that. So when we say the word qi, uh, using the English translation from the period from around the 1960s to around 2010, the typical Chinese uh, translation into English is breath. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, think of the breath starting at the lower Dantian, what you're really thinking is using the breath to direct your mind to beginning to, um, shall we say, supercharge and energize yourself from the lower Dantian up through the upper Dantian. Okay. Well, that sheds some light on practice for those of us who practice, um, who are listening to this. this is, these are the golden pearls that take years, if not decades, if not a whole lifetime to come to. So mm. thanks for that. And by the way, um, talking about sort of the arc of practice, you know, I, I, I recall, you know, starting practicing Tai Chi many years ago, too. And, you know, young, strong, I can do anything. My postures were longer. I was deeper. I was more flexible. But, but <laughs> I was just, while you were talking about, you know, the, the mind, you know, checking in and directing and, and, and being present, all that, all that really didn't start happening for me until many, many years uh, later and, and older. You know, and they always talk about how it takes years to master, quote unquote, uh, any of this stuff. And by no means would I consider myself a master at all. But I've been practicing a long time. Can you talk about the the sort of the arc of practice from when you first start to to you know sort of you know how how does it go for people generally? Yeah, yeah, this is a great question, and it actually. Um, at the end of the last one, I was going to tag something on that really kind of goes pretty close to what we're talking about here. Um, but first, let's just talk traditionally about the, the, the socio-political environment uh, of the imperial time, because that's a thousands of years in China. And so the mythology that is promoted to the younger people is that, you know, we want to make you a warrior and we want you to feel like becoming a warrior is what you're made for. Mm -hmm. and, and so in that, there's a whole uh, level of, you know, when we say the word practice and then we say the word training, training sounds hard, practice sounds like it could be easier. And, and to a certain extent it is. So for the lower, farther, stronger, which we want from the young, uh, young people, either in the military or in the in the monasteries, because mm -hmm. both Wudong, Dao monasteries, and and Shaolin and other Buddhist monasteries, they all had to protect themselves in this horribly um, violent uh, culture of China. 
Right. And, and so everybody's proliferating the idea that the, 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 you get the gold if you, or you win if you're strong. Mm -hmm. But then these people become generals and, and now they're ordering the younger people around. They have to become more strategic. Mm -hmm. They also want to follow the rule of the martial arts, which is the winner, the big winner is the person who can end the fight before it begins. Right. And so that the mythology shifts from you got to kick ass to you're in charge of figuring out how to, to, to keep all these people from getting killed mm -hmm. and being more strategic and being more strategic in Chinese society is less, uh, is not like being strategic in Western society is, uh, in Western society, you, you say, I will bring shock and awe down on you and you will regret it. Right. Uh, in, in China, the idea is I'm going to sneak around behind you and, um, kick your knees out from under you and then convince you that we don't need to have this fight. Right. It's a whole different kind of thing. And it links into this beautiful part of Chinese society, which, uh, kind of becomes uh, Confucianistic and then gets all political, but Confucianism is very Taoistic at its philosophical level. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the, the practice and the training are constantly about cultivating and eventually a person cultivates to the level that they are the head of a household mm -hmm. and they are in a business. Mm -hmm. And so now what are we doing? And then later what happens is that you're an older person mm -hmm. and you're asking the question, how am I going to get out of here? Yeah. And, you know, do I want to die because I'm a horribly decrepit old person or do I want to be a really powered up old person who dies on their own terms? I mean, if that can even happen. Yeah. So then cultivation trans transitions to another phase. And if you, if you hang around with monks, you'll find that older monks are only sitting and meditating um, and not doing a lot of really vigorous practice. And younger monks are not doing a lot of meditating and doing a whole lot of vigorous practice. And, and so that kind of describes the arc. And I would just add to that one thing, because in the end, the stories that we hear surrender themselves to the story of our life. Mm -hmm. And so for myself, you know, I was mystified by the great martial arts stories and the great Tao stories. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'm over 70 years old right now. I have like a whole story of my own. Yeah. And I do train every day. I, I do uh, that stuff. And, and when the weather turns right, instead of having a staff that I'm, Kung fuing around with, I have a shovel and I'm going out to tend the trails in the forest near my house and so forth. So I've set myself up yeah. to, to live this mythology mm -hmm. in my own way. And, and so um, I'm a little less about sitting and meditating. I'm big into the philosophy. I love that stuff. Uh, but for the body, I want to, I'm, I'm on it. I, I keep going. Yeah, I remember. I remember when you, when I took your class, you were 
you were back then you were a big proponent. You'd say, I love to go out and run, man. I love to, you know, go out and do stuff. I don't know if you still run or, but you do. I do. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about that. From around Thanksgiving, I start preparing for uh, a, what I call the winter solstice season. Mm-hmm. And so I start with a little bit of running and a little bit of walking. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time we get to the winter solstice, I'm running more. And by the time we get to January and February, I can run all the way from my house to the ocean, which is about a half a mile from here, and back mm-hmm. without stopping. Uh-huh. And, and then after that, I kind of like let it go yeah. uh, until next year. And, and, and I go back to more Tai Chi and more Qigong mm-hmm. and working in the garden and um, doing a lot of traveling during the summer. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to bring us back to some of the research. I'm thinking of some of the, I mean, there's so much good research now, the evidence, right. That's showing Tai Chi is good for, or Tai Chi Qigong. Let's just talk about them both. Yeah. One of the landmark ones that came out recently was, you know, Tai Chi reducing falls in, in uh, elderly populations. Uh, And that was pretty, that was pretty big. I think one of that was four or five years ago. Um, Correct. So on falls, the falls prevention was the, you know, we talk about the, the, the spear point of, of, of a disease coming into the system and attacking the lungs. Um, the falls prevention feature of Qigong and Tai Chi was what came in as the spear point for uh, uh, policy and research noticing the value of, of Qigong and Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. And it was more than five years ago. This is more like 10. Oh, is it okay? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and the, what drove it was that policymakers were asking the question, do we really need to wait for people to have a medical issue to um, uh, mobilize something that we would call rehab? So when a person falls down, you give them a surgery, then they go to rehab, what would happen if you gave, if you basically started building a, a story mm-hmm. around the fact that there's value in doing rehab-like gestures before you have the disease? Yeah. And falls prevention was big on that. And then the other one was uh, cardiac. Yeah. And, and hypertension too, or is that part of the same? That, that would fall into the cardiac side. Is that part of the whole? Okay. So any, any other... Uh, thing that's been happening in the research realm lately. What about, I was noticing, I was reading, um, you know, we're working on the holistic um, or the uh, health and human performance coaching. uh, Mm -hmm. So we're reading up a lot about, you know, new practices, old practices, integrating traditional practices with new cutting edge things. And so I've been reading a little bit on, um, you know, peak performance trainer, training and obviously you know navy seals these guys are you know peak performers and i noticed that they're practice in in some of their regimens they're practicing tai chi and qigong and i was wondering how that in how that infiltrated that area were you mm-hmm. were you aware that they're doing that yes oh absolutely and i watched that stuff really closely one of my uh one of the books that i write, liked a lot was stealing fire uh-huh you're probably familiar with that mm-hmm. one, and that ha- that was a Navy SEAL and a and a performance enhancement expert 
basically building a uh, uh, building a paradigm yeah. around flow right. state flow states. flow states. Yes. And um, what we know is that when uh, the heroes in basketball step up to the free flow free free throw line, mm -hmm. they drop in yeah. to a kind of timeless state. Uh, when golfers are making that putt in front of not only thousands of people standing around the green, but millions of people who are watching on television, mm -hmm. they, they have to be able to disassociate from the, um, the preferences, to, to, to go from the preference state to the acceptance state. Because people who play these games, whether it's war games or athletic games or even the games of uh, uh, contemporary uh, product management, uh, project management and, and developing uh, products, which you just talked about doing, mm -hmm. this whole concept of getting off the idea that <clears throat> we, um, that we uh, enhance capacity by going hard. Yeah. And allowing the fact that not going hard is a compliment, and that the, 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 the Tai Chi itself, the Tai Chi, the, 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 the image of the yin and the yang merging, that that Tai Chi means something. Mm -hmm. And so if we got the meaning of, of going for it, then what have we lost? Well, we've lost the meaning of not going for it. We're back to cheerful indifference again. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that so much of what is really healing for people is um, slow, slowing down exercises, mm -hmm. meditation, and then in coaching, it's really interesting because I'm actually a part of a, an organization that's developed a coaching system and we've trained thousands of coaches uh, over um, a couple of decades, mm -hmm. is that we want to have a goal. However, if we get locked down on the idea that if we didn't achieve the goal in the time that we thought we could, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean anything. Right. Our culture says if you didn't get an A, you can't go forward. Yeah. Coaching says if you didn't get an A, you just figured something out. Right. And the power of that figuring out, the, the coaching program that I work with, which is called Circle of Life, has what's what we call the 15 inherent powers mm -hmm. and one of the powers is acceptance of that which arises which cannot be changed mm -hmm. is very powerful and that is not a stepping forward that's not a pushing that's not a a making that's an a stepping back mm -hmm. and you know the I Ching is talking about this all the time you know uh, right now you're in a phase where it would really be a good idea for you to step back don't try to do anything and don't try to convince anyone of anything. This is a moment for review, uh, for renourishing and renewing yourself so that you can be ready for the next phase of, of, of action. Mm. How appropriate and how necessary for our society, mm. right? I mean, everybody, everybody I know, even people in, in our field are so forward looking you know, and, and driven. Uh, so that's really, that's uh, so timely to hear that, Roger. Thank what you. do you, what do you see as what's on the horizon for, for Qigong Tai Chi in our society? We talked earlier 
before we actually started the podcast about how how yoga has taken off in our culture um, and and whereas Ayurveda as a medical practice hasn't really and yet conversely Chinese medicine or acupuncture is beginning it, I would say it's in its adolescence it's not mature yet um, but yet Qigong Tai Chi is still very much in its yep. in its infancy or toddler well, it's about a couple of right yeah Oh yeah. Well, let, let, let's just talk about it because there's there's a, there's a kind of a futuristic moment that might be just the great segue for us to reach our conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, on the influx of Tai Chi and Qigong into Western culture and Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine is all about lifestyle mm-hmm. and eating and you know it it moves its way up into herbs and treatments but it really is mostly about a behavioral set Mm -hmm. whereas chinese medicine was quickly recognized as something that you have to have an expert for Mm -hmm. and so the 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 pacing of chinese medicine coming to the western world from my own personal view and this is just an opinion is that the Western world recognizes a doctor who will do something to you. Yeah. Uh, whereas Ayurvedic medicine almost in, is so deeply woven in that it's about behavioral that most people just say, well, screw that. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk to a doctor about how I'm screwing up my life. I just want somebody to fix me. Mm. On the Tai Chi, on the other hand, what happened there was that yoga came in to the Western world in the Mm twenties with uh, Yogananda and Vivekananda and so forth. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the Chinese were really locked down. They were locked down in imperialism. Mm -hmm. Then they were locked down into the, uh, the, which was just as bad nationalism with the elite being in charge and then finally with communism and all of the challenges with that. Yeah. But as soon as Mao died in 1975, and I, I remember I was studying Chinese medicine and I was talking to my neighbor who was Chinese and she was upset um, because Mao had died. And I talked to her for a long time and I could not figure out whether she was upset because he was gone <laughs> or because that she was upset because he had been there for so long. The, 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 even though she was not in China, the fear of actually exposing one's personal views about those things, yeah. very big in Chinese society. And so uh, uh, while yoga was churning, uh, it, it, Tai Chi and Qigong could not get out of China mm. until 1975. And I think that that's the big difference because if you look what they are, uh, yoga and well, you can even see by how they talk about it in, in China, they say, uh, Chinese yoga instead of, uh, I mean, uh, let's get this right. So in China, yoga is called Indian Qigong. Yeah. And in India, Qigong is called Chinese yoga. So, they're they're basically the three treasures the the operational components and so on for for every intent and purpose they're the same and can be modified to be exactly the same Mm. however 
yoga kind of got busy with lying on the floor mm. and changing clothes. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a big barrier to a lot of people. Absolutely. So the people who don't want to roll around on the floor and change their clothes are just pouring into the Qigong and Tai Chi uh, community at this point. Mm. And 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 so then now on to my <laughs> really interesting punchline. One of the things that I think very strongly is no matter what happens to the humans, uh, it will be better if Qigong is a part of it. And I'll give you an example. If we screw up this planet and have to go to Mars, you're going to want to have the people that you send know how to manage themselves, body, mind, all the way. Um, because otherwise they're just going to get bored and kill, kill each other. Yeah. Or what if we have to put human uh, evolution into a device because the, the food is gone and the air is gone? Mm. You would want whatever goes into that device to be created by the people who, who, who understand Qigong. Mm-hmm. And if somehow the humans are able to salvage their planet, it's very likely going to be because those people finally broke through to the fact that competition and winning is losing. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's much of a punchline, but I hope that, (laughs) I hope that I'm laughing. (laughs) I, I hope that the latter happens. I don't want to be moving to Mars anytime soon. I'm a big proponent of exploration. I think, I don't think we're, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but hopefully we can salvage the the great blue marble we're on. And I think that, you know, doing, doing these practices of being present in the moment and doing Qigong and having, you know, wonderful uh, scholars and instructors like you around the world and, you know, leading the charge um, and institutions like ours that are training people to, to do things um, will help, you know, it's not a, Oh, I mean, not only will it help, it, it is to me, I'm, you know, I'm, it's just a personal opinion. Yeah. I feel like Chinese medicine and all the mind body practices, yoga and, and Tai Chi and Qigong and Zumba even oh, yeah. are a part of, and Feldenkrais and all that stuff yeah. are a part of how that will become possible yeah. because the, the goal for those of us who are humanitarians is to liberate people from false assumptions. Yeah. And the false assumption that you need a doctor is very different than the assumption that you can take care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll leave it at that. And Roger, it's been an absolute honor to have you here and, and we appreciate, appreciate your wisdom and your dedication to the art and practice of uh, Chinese medicine. And um, we will, I'm sure, be working with you in the, in the future and hope to see you soon in person at, a, at maybe a symposium down here. Yeah, yeah, of course. I look forward to that always. And Greg, thank you yeah. so much. This has really been fun for me. I wish you well. Thank you, my friend. It's an honor. Take care.